You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight's going to be a very interesting episode. Uh, it's going to be, I always say episodes are a little bit different, but this one's going to be kind of different because we're not going to be talking about frogs per se, but we're going to be talking about the toxin or one of the toxins that some of the more uh, popular, well-known species of dart frog produce. And of course, I'm talking about patricotoxin, which is produced by members of the Phyllobates genus, um, Terabilis, Bicolor, and I, uh, the other one, I know it's the Goldifusion, it's eluding me at the moment, but we'll, we'll get into it. But um, before we get into tonight's guest, I want to thank everyone for leaving the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. As I always say, it's a great way to support the show. It's the easiest way for you to support the show. So if you are enjoying the show, take a few minutes. Nice five-star review in Apple Podcasts definitely makes a difference. And if you're also looking to support the show in a different way, you want to become a, uh, a member of the uh, Patreon team, a great way to support the show. I've got a nice $5 tier. gets you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. So if you're looking to support the show from the Patreon, that's a great way to do so as well. So feel free to go check those things out. And other than that, I want to really get into tonight's topic, but I want to tell you, everyone, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, my guest tonight is Dr. Justin Dubois of Stanford University, and he is an expert on toxins and the chemistry behind toxins. In particular, he works with patricotoxin. So we're not going to be talking about the frogs per se. We're not going to be talking about phylobates or, uh, you know, anything like that in the wild, we're going to basically talk about w- what the toxin is and what its implications are in human contexts, such as uh, medic- medications, therapeutic drugs, etc. And we're also going to discuss the mechanics of, of pain and how toxins uh, work a- in terms of pain medication and uh, all those things that are kind of outside of my pay grade. But Justin is uh, an expert on all that, so I'm going to let him kind of lead the way here because I'm not too much, I'm not too well versed in chemistry myself. But first off, why don't we get our introductions out there? Justin, I, I really want to thank you for agreeing to be on the show. It's a, a real pleasure to have you given all your research, which I was, I wasn't able to get to everything, but the stuff that I was able to get to is just fascinating. So why don't you start by introducing yourself? Tell, tell us your story. How did you become a scientist and what led you to where you are today? Oh, well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate the opportunity um, to speak with you. And uh, um, how did I get here? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a long story. I'll try to give you the, the Cliff Notes version. But I, I was a, an undergraduate at, at UC Berkeley um, back in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. And I um, found my way into chemistry almost accidentally. Um, uh, discovered that I really enjoyed um, the laboratory culture and and working in the lab and uh, I had always enjoyed working with my hands as a kid and what I found in chemistry is that I could build things they just on the microscopic scale uh, that is you know designing and creating new molecules um, with specific functions uh, that got me hooked and uh, I found my way to graduate school uh, after leaving Berkeley, I was at Caltech as a graduate student for about five years, uh, postdoc for a couple of years at MIT. Um, this is a typical path for, 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 for university faculty. Um, and, uh, and, and my first job after finishing my postdoc was here at Stanford, and I've been here ever since. Uh, so it's about 22 years now that I've been a professor 
in the chemistry department. Um, I also have a courtesy appointment in chemical and systems biology, and um, I um, sit in a building here on campus that is literally a stone's throw from the medical school at Stanford, and um, that's really informed um, my interactions with 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 individuals, with other faculty and um, students and postdocs at the medical school has really informed some of the research that my lab is currently doing. It's interesting. I just, I, I wish I had a, a greater understanding of, of chemistry. I remember being younger and we kind of, we, we kind of talked off air about uh, bringing chemistry into a more uh, colorful light. And I think that this is definitely a way to do so because you're working with one of the most I- incredible organisms on the planet and one of the most, uh, lethal toxins out there you know one of the things that dart frogs are obviously notorious for is i mean it's in the moniker poison dart frogs is the the extent of the toxicity but i feel like we don't really have at least in in my world anyway a, a great understanding of what the toxin is what is it on a chemical level and how does it work i feel like a lot of times we sort of just kind of take for granted all these things are toxic they'll 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 kill you uh, you know indigenous peoples using the tip arrows but what i want to know is and and don't hold back get into as as, as much as you want to on a chemical level what is betrachotoxin and what does it do mm-hmm. yeah um I, I, if you don't mind i just step back for a second because the point you made about chemistry is one that that certainly i've, I've heard from many people, uh, many flights on airplanes where somebody will sheepishly ask me what I do. And when I say I'm a chemist, I, I usually get a, a fairly strong visceral reaction, uh, one of, 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 of antipathy towards the subject that I love. And, and that's because, as you indicated, you know, students typically only experience one year of chemistry as, as 16-year-olds in high school. And, and after that, we'll never See the subject again, and and I think it's unfortunate. Of course, I'm I'm highly biased, but I think it's a wonderful language that really helps us understand the the natural uh, and unnatural world. And um, I think it should be viewed as a language, and it's a universal language which allows me as a chemist to understand biological systems um, in a way that I think it's it's harder for um, somebody who hasn't been trained or versed in in molecular science, uh, to really appreciate. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the frogs, uh, you and I, we are all just a chemical factory (laughs) running literally millions of reactions, uh, in, in parallel, uh, to power us. And, and so, um, and this is what draws a chemist like myself into this area that intersects pharmacology with chemistry and biology and neuroscience, um, because I see the world all through the lens of molecular science. Um, so with, with that as a backdrop, um, I'll just say that, uh, what, what fascinates us about batrachotoxin. So the, the backstory on this is pretty exciting. I mean, it was, there was a team at the national institutes of health that was sent into the rainforest of Columbia back in the sixties. Uh, sadly, there were many frogs isolated. I mean, somewhere between five and 10,000 frogs that were sacrificed in order to isolate small amounts, uh, hundreds of milligrams of this poison. 
Um, subsequent work at the NIH uh, revealed that the structure of this poison is really a steroid um, in the same way we would think about uh, testosterone or, or estrogen. It has the basic molecular skeleton of a steroid, although it's a little bit more elaborate than that. And I jokingly say it's a steroid on steroids. And I, I think that kind of captures um, its molecular form. Um, so we've, we've known the structure of betrachotoxin for the better part of, you know, 50 odd years. And as early as the late seventies, uh, and into the nineties, there were a couple of groups that, uh, tried to synthesize the poison, um, from simple starting materials, commercially available materials that are inexpensive. Um, so as to have access to this poison, uh, in a way that wouldn't, require that you had to go sacrifice another 10,000 frogs, which of course we don't want to be doing. Um, so the question, you know, would be why would a chemist be interested in synthesizing a poison like betrachotoxin? I, I think in the seventies, certainly in the, in the, in the fifties and sixties and seventies and sort of in the annals of, of synthetic organic chemistry, there's always been a desire to push ourselves as researchers to see if we can synthesize some of the most complicated molecules that nature offers us. Um, some would call it a mountain climbing expedition. Um, I would say that there's opportunities to really discover new science when you're trying to make really complicated molecules like betrachotoxin, uh, despite all of the textbooks we have on organic chemistry. Um, when we go into the lab and and put to practice all of the different reactions that we have in those textbooks and trying to assemble a molecule as complicated as betrachotoxin, we run into problems. And it's in trying to invent solutions to those problems that we discover new chemistry. So I think that was really the reason why chemists were excited about this molecule back in the when it was when it was first isolated and disclosed. Um, I would say from our perspective, you know, having started my lab now in the turn of the century and with advances in chemical synthesis, you know, it's become possible to look at a complicated molecule like betrachotoxin and say, not only can we synthesize it, but might we be able to change its structure in certain ways that would allow us to begin to understand its activity? And its activity is really, really interesting. Um, so I can I can go into that in more detail. But I mean, uh, I would say you know my lab's specific interest in betrachotoxin and why we would want to synthesize it, it is in part because it is a really interesting chemical structure, and we hope that it will challenge us to develop new chemical technologies. But we also have every expectation that in synthesizing the molecule, we can begin to change its, its structure and use it as a tool to really understand the biological target um, that, it, that, it, that, it, that it engages. I'm looking at um, some of your research here that was published. Um, actually, it was, in, it was in November of 2016. Uh, this is in the Chemical and Engineering News and it sort of discusses, and again, I'm, I'm so poorly versed in chemistry, I can't quite make out all of it, but uh, it, it discusses some of the methodology that you used in your work. And my question is, 
how do you synthesize, I guess, uh, how do I put this? Um, obviously, the toxin occurs in nature. How, how do you create something like that syn- synthetically in a lab? How, how do you build uh, a, a new chemical out of out of whatever it is that you build? I, I mean, again, I'm making yeah. myself sound stupid here, but I, I, no, I admit no, I am. No, not at all. Not at all. It's a great question. Uh, and, 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 you know, I would say it, it's a little bit like cooking, uh, um, in that, you know, you know, when you, you'll add one ingredient, uh, maybe wait for that ingredient to, to, um, to bloom and then add another ingredient and another ingredient. Now in, in, in the, in the chemical sort of research lab, um, what we will do is, is start with a, a very inexpensive, chemical compound that we can purchase from a chemical supplier. Um, and in the case of the trachotoxin, uh, we, we start with, with, with something called proline, which is uh, an amino acid, uh, and it's very inexpensive. And we begin to use proline as a catalyst, as a, we use proline in this case as a catalyst to promote a reactions of two other simple starting materials that begin to build up the complex polycyclic structure of the steroid of the trachotoxin. And it's really an iterative process. So we're making sort of one bond at a time. Um, and, 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 and each time we, we, we build an, a new bond, we, we take the time to then purify and isolate that, that new chemical entity. And then we'll take that chemical entity into the next reaction and we'll stitch another bond onto it. And, this goes on in the case of our batrachotoxin synthesis, um, which, as you noted, was reported back in 2016. We went through 25 iterative steps like that. So you can imagine some of the complications of the synthesis now. It, even if you think about the, the synthesis of each bond as being, say, 90% yielding. And for us in chemistry, a 90% yield, that is to say that 90% of the starting material was converted into a product that we wanted. The other 10% was waste, and we were able to separate that, the impurities from the, the chemical we wanted. But even at that kind of efficiency, 90% yield, if you think about going 25 steps in an iterative process like that, so 25 steps in series, your overall yield is 0.9 to the power of 25. So it's an incredibly small number. You know, you start with a kilogram of material, which is a lot. And at the end of the, 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 the assembly line, you're left with hundreds of milligrams or milligrams of the product you want. And that's one of the reasons why chemical synthesis is so complicated uh, and so difficult is because we first of all don't get 90% yield on most reactions we'll get something less than that and because it requires so many linear steps or iterative steps to stitch together a molecule as complicated as batrachotoxin one of the things my lab would love to do is come up with chemical technologies that allow us to put together a molecule like batrachotoxin in say 12 steps or 10 steps Less is more. It's it's like golf that way, I suppose. Um, so so um, this is this is the challenge of synthetic chemistry, and and this is going on everywhere. You know, every pharmaceutical industry, uh, every agrochemical industry, anywhere where you need to make molecules, the bottleneck really is just the 
the, the challenge of trying to put to assemble one bond at a time um, in a way that is highly efficient. And to my knowledge, the only molecules that we can make that where the efficiency is extreme, 99%, are molecules like DNA. So we can actually make DNAs now. Uh, we've been able to do this for, for tens of years, and it really is the start of the biotech revolution, I would argue, that with the ability to synthesize DNA so efficiently that we can use a machine to do it. You can literally press a button and make whatever DNA you want um, within reason. Uh, we can't do that with molecules like batrachotoxin. It's much more complicated uh, and much less efficient and requires you know, a, a real skilled practitioner in the art and practice of, of chemical synthesis, which is what many of my grad students are, are training um, to do, to learn. So in terms of the advancement, I know you you'd mentioned, obviously, this article was from 2016. How much advancement has happened with since this article was published in terms of like your research? I mean, is there, I know we kind of touched on it, but has it, is this increasing to the point where it'll be simpler a, a year from now, five years from now? Yeah. Um, well, so we've certainly continued to endeavor to, to make the access to the molecule easier. Um, and I would hope that in the next year or two, we'll see sort of a version 2.0, uh, where we've, where we've, where we've cut this synthesis down from 25 steps to ideally, again, you know, somewhere in the 15 to 20 range. Um, I, I think it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine a, a shorter synthesis than that, just again, given the complexity of the molecule. But in parallel, um, what my group has has tried to do um, is to really learn the tools of the trade in molecular biology um, and, and, and neurobiology. And specifically, we've been interested in, in working with the target of this molecule, of this toxin. The target is a really fascinating molecular machine called a voltage-gated sodium ion channel. And that's a mouthful. I'll just refer to them as sodium channels. Um, I think everybody can appreciate what the sodium what the sodium channels um, fu primary function is, and and this is to allow sodiums to cross um, a lipid membrane, um, particularly lipid membranes found in neurons, uh, excitable cells. And so what voltage-gated sodium channels have evolved to do is to, to take part in, in the generation and propagation of electrical signals in neurons. And of course, that's obligatory for life's processes. I mean, um, even, even lowly bacteria have voltage-gated sodium channels. And so uh, what you find uh, in nature is that there are a number of acute toxins, batrachotoxin is one of many, that are evolved to affect the function of voltage-gated sodium channels, because arguably it's one of the fastest ways of shutting down an organism, is to, to basically muck up the electrical signaling of that organism. And batrachotoxin, as I said, is one of just myriad toxins you find various peptide toxins in snakes and centipedes and spiders, and these all engage the same voltage-gated sodium channels that batrachotoxin does. You find toxins in Japanese pufferfish in fugu. You find them in California salamander. 
Uh, you find them in blue ring octopi. Those same toxins engage the same protein target, this incredible machine called the sodium channel. Uh, so what my group is really trying to do is use tools like batrachotoxin to understand the structure and function and physiology of the sodium channel. And the reason for that is that we want to be able to find better ways of regulating these protein machines because we know that dysregulation of these machines is associated with a number of human pathologies uh, from different cardiac arrhythmias, uh, skeletal disorders, epilepsies, and even um, chronic and neuropathic pain. And so our hope is that we may be able to, again, use these toxins really to inform um, a better understanding of how these protein machines work, how they're involved in, in, in somatosensory uh, perception, and, uh, you know, again, maybe ultimately help folks in the pharmaceutical industry really develop better medicines um, for treating um, disorders associated with sodium channel malfunction and dysregulation. How much of an interest is there from pharmaceutical companies? I mean, I, I, you know, you don't have to get, I don't know if you know sure, too much about sure. it, but um, I often wonder, every so often stuff will come up in my news feed about how uh, species X is uh, somehow contributing to human medicine through uh, a toxin that produces venom, po uh, poison, whatever it is. But I'm always curious about what the pharmaceutical companies are actually doing with this and how much interest they actually have in this. Is there a really high demand for synthetic toxins for pharmaceutical companies to develop um, medications or, or different drugs? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as high demand. I would say that there are a number of natural products, there are a number of drugs, you know, clinically prescribed medicines that whose origin can be traced back to a natural product. Um, and that is to say that ultimately the, the, the clinically efficacious molecule is not the natural toxin itself, but maybe a derivative of that natural toxin or that the natural toxin inspired, a, you know, a, 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 the design of a, of, a, of a related molecule, which was hitting the same protein target. Um, and, and there are many stories like that, um, different cardiac uh, drugs uh, or, or drugs for treating cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, again, you can trace to their um, uh, angiotensin um, drugs uh, or um, uh, drugs that lead to vasodilation. You can trace these to, to, to different um, naturally occurring toxins. Uh, at this time, you know, I, I would say there's probably less work in the pharmaceutical industry, certainly than there was 30, 40 years ago, to go around the planet collecting various soil samples or marine sponge samples and looking for new molecules as leads for um, different human medicines. Um, but um, there's no denying that molecules like patracotoxin are really interesting from a pharmacological standpoint. The challenge, of course, is how do you take something that's evolved to be intrinsically toxic and turn it into something that's uh, a medicine and, uh, by definition, non-toxic? Um, um, that's not an easy challenge. Uh, I would say that you will 
find in rare cases, uh, in a rare case that I'm I'm aware of uh, of a cone snail toxin. Uh, it's a peptide, and it's marketed under uh, as prealt. It's also known as zinconotide, and that is used. Um, it is, as far as I know, that is the actual one of many toxins that the cone snail is synthesizing, and that is actually used. Um, to treat certain types of chronic pain, but uh, almost at the extreme end of the of, of a chronic pain disorder, it, it's it's not a a medicine that's prescribed widely uh, widely. Um, uh, but these are rare. These are these are rare examples uh, where again a toxin has actually made it to market like that. Um, um, from my perspective, at this point, betrachotoxin. I don't know that I would be able to to say with a straight face that I see real therapeutic potential for betrachotoxin. What I hope is that betrachotoxin will teach us how to design next generation therapeutics, next generation analgesics that are much better than the kinds of pain medicines that we have today. And we can we can talk a little bit more about um, about that that vision if if you'd like. Um, but the molecule itself is probably not is probably not the molecule that would ultimately would never. I, there's no possible way. In fact, I'll just you know be blunt about it. There's no possible way that betrachotoxin could end up in a in a in a pill bottle someday. It it just doesn't have the kind of selectivity that one needs uh, without worrying about all kinds of um, side effects. You know, obviously, in, including lethality. Yeah, I I didn't think that it was going to be something that you'd find at CVS next to Tylenol. I, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, especially because of the lethality of it. And I, I do want to get into um, what you just mentioned a moment ago. But first, one question, well, two questions, actually. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the yield. Now, are you creating molecules on an individual level or do you get, I mean, this is going to sound completely ridiculous, but do you get... Uh, a batch of them, meaning how do you, uh, obviously you mm -hmm. can't hold a molecule, a molecule in your hand. How does this become tangible to the point where you could work with it? Or, um, I'm trying to think, uh, how do I, I mean, you're not just going to end up with a, a vial of, of, of toxin, right? Well, no, we will end up with a, with a, with a vial that contains a small amount of a, of a white powder. Um, typically now a small amount is, is a very small amount because in my lab, we need very small amounts to do the kinds of biological experiments we, 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 we want to do, um, and that we are doing. Um, so uh, on the order of milligrams, uh, uh, we will produce on the order of milligrams of toxin. Um, that's a, you know, a, less than a certainly less than a teaspoon of of of, of salt um but you would you would visibly be able to see a, a white powder and and that that contains literally tens of 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 a bill of a millions of molecules but as you said we're not we're not holding up an individual molecule but trachotoxin we generate a of of a collection of them and um in the macroscopic sense, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a white powder when we, when we isolate it. Okay. I understand. I was just, I'm kind of a visual person. Yeah. I was just trying to wrap my head around how you'd, you'd create, Never mind. We can, <laughs> we can move on. I'm embarrassing myself, but, um, uh, yeah, so we can kind of go back to what you were saying before about, um, 
just some of the Im- implications. We talked about the pharmaceutical company. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you, so go, go on. You can uh, finish what you were. Uh... No, no, no. You you didn't. I I I I I mean, I, I would just make one other point about you know the possibility. I mean, it's a fine line between a, a a toxin and an efficacious drug. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry talks about something called a therapeutic index, and that is exactly what it sounds like. It's the you know, it's sort of the differential between a a, a a drug dose that is efficacious versus one that is lethal. And and every drug that's prescribed has a lethal limit. Um, uh, of course, the best drugs have a large window between efficacy and lethality. Um, so so that would be a challenge. You know, how would you imagine re-engineering batrachotoxin so that it only blocked say sodium channels and pain receptors and or or act, I should say activated those channels because that's what it does uh, and didn't actually affect sodium channels that are in your central nervous system that are responsible for conducting electricity so that you can do all manner of other processes that you need to do. Um, that's the challenge of a, of a chemist actually working in the pharmaceutical industry. And I, I should make the point that the the design and the development of pharmaceuticals really starts in the mind of a chemist. Now, the biologist and the pharmacologist will define the targets, but ultimately, if you want to make a molecule that can engage those targets and either block function or turn on protein function, that that is something that a molecular architect does. And, and that is what we chemists are, our molecular architects. You know, we're the ones who actually look at the periodic table as sort of our canvas of 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 uh, of of building materials and and think about how to stitch the atoms together in ways to create new molecules with specific functions and I think it's been lost on the lay public um, at least when I poll a lot of Stanford undergrads and I say you know who who designs and makes drugs I often get a sense that you know it's they they believe it's the medical doctors who do that and with no disrespect to the medical profession they are not the ones who are designing and synthesizing the drugs. That is something that we synthetic chemists do. And I have students who go off into this industry who are trained in my lab. And, um, and, and so I, I, I'll just give a, a shout out for synthetic chemistry that way. But um, we are, um, I am currently working with a small pharmaceutical company um, that spun out of my lab that is trying to take other toxins, not batrachotoxin, but toxins that are associated with these algae blooms, these red tides um, that occur periodically now in the, uh, in fact, more frequently than, 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 than uh, once happened. Um, and these red tides, of course, uh, bring with them uh, uh, these, these blooms of so-called dinoflagellates, which are producing, so we believe, um, these amazing toxins. Uh, uh, the f- one particular family is known as paralytic shellfish poisons. And it just so happens that these paralytic shellfish poisons also act on the same sodium channels that vitracotoxin does. Um, and what this small company that I'm working with um, um, is able to do is to re-engineer paralytic shellfish poisons to be exquisitely selective blockers of one form of sodium channel that um, that is responsible for um, pain sensation. 
And the reason we know that this particular sodium channel is responsible for pain sensation is because there is a patient population um, which lacks a functional form of this sodium channel. And these patients have whole body analgesia. That is, they do not sense pain at all. You can literally drive a knife through their hand and, and they will not feel the pain. And, and this is remarkable genetic information um, that seems to point to this one sodium channel as an amazing target for the development of next generation analgesic medicines. And so um, we have been trying very hard, uh, this small company, to again, engineer these molecules to be exquisitely selective so that the only sodium channel they're engaging is the one associated with with sensory pain perception and not sodium channels that are found, say, in your, in your diaphragm or in your heart, uh, where obviously blocking those sodium channels would lead to all kinds of, of, of deleterious effects. It's interesting because that was one of the things I was curious about was how, how do you differentiate between, um, different, I guess, different types of sodium channels. I mean, meaning if a toxin, if, uh, if an organism comes into contact with a toxin, is it just sort of like a, like a shotgun approach where it affects everything in the body, like every sodium channel in the body, or does it, does it still select certain ones and, and operate by attacking them? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think from an evolutionary perspective, you'd probably say there's no reason for a toxin to be selective. Like why not just act, why not just affect all the different sodium channels? And 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 you know if the goal is just simply to to be lethal, that 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 would seem to make reasonable sense to 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 my mind. As it turns out, um, there are toxins, and I would say that batrachotoxin is one of them that, that are just like that. They're non-selective. They will engage any sodium channel, whether it's in sensory neurons, whether it's in cardiac tissue, whether it's in skeletal tissue. Um, but there are other toxins that are actually exquisitely selective um, for individual, what we call subtypes of sodium channels. So there are, I should have said this earlier, but there are nine different subtypes or thought to be nine different subtypes of sodium channels. They're labeled NAV 1.1 through 1.9. So 1.1 through 1.9. And, and as I said, there are some toxins that will only engage, say, NAV 1.6 or NAV 1.8. Uh, and there are others that will engage all nine of them. Um, we believe, although the experiments haven't been done across the panel of nine subtypes, but we believe we have no reason to believe that batrachotoxin wouldn't engage all nine subtypes. So this would be a major challenge for turning batrachotoxin into a therapeutically efficacious um, drug. Um, you, you would have to find a way of engineering it so that it's specific for a single subtype. Um, and, and that is a, a real, a real challenge in molecular design. People often refer to toxic animals in terms of the number of people that contact with them would kill, which I always thought was kind of, I don't know. I, I always thought it was kind of a juvenile scare tactic approach to, to poisonous and venomous animals. But 
If uh, you were to come into contact with this toxin, and people often say it's enough to kill 10 humans, 100 humans, regardless of whatever, how is that measurement determined? Is that something that is... How do, you, how do you quantify something like that in terms of how much toxin is enough to cause to cause death? Because, I mean, obviously, this is one of the most lethal toxins on the planet that's produced by um, produced by an animal. But for sure, for how, sure. how do you how do you quantify something like that? Yeah. Well, uh, sadly, uh, uh, a lot of white mice get sacrificed to to quantify things like that. Um you, you can deliver the toxin either through an intravenous injection. You can deliver it through something called an intraperitoneal injection, which is basically to inject directly into the stomach cavity, or you can, you can feed it to mice and chow. Um, and you're going to get different values of toxicity depending on your method of delivery. Um, something delivered directly into the venous system is going to probably require less toxin to get to the lethal dose than something delivered orally, uh, because not all of it that passes through the stomach and the gut will necessarily get taken up by the organism. Some of it will just pass through. So, um, that's basically how you go about, you know, determining those numbers. And just for, um, calibration, I, I believe batrachotoxin has an LD 50. So a lethal dose in which 50% of the mice in the, in the group will end up dying, um, on the order of about two micrograms per kg. I may be off by a little bit, but it's extraordinarily potent. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 it's really, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible molecule in that regard. And of, of course, when you're working with it, one needs to be careful in how we handle it, which we, we do, and we don't make very large quantities, but uh, we don't need fortunately large quantities to do the experiments that we want to do with it. But um, that's, you know, any toxin would be, would be um, characterized the same way. And you'll see different so-called LD50 values, so lethal dose limit uh, values um, for oral, intraperitoneal, or IV, um, again, depending on the method of delivery. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's sad that that's really the only way we have to do it, but um, unfortunately, that, that's it. And uh, uh, all those experiments are, are almost exclusively done on, on, on laboratory mice. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I, I, you know, regardless how people feel, that's the way it is. But with it being that toxic, I mean, the the, the numbers that you gave, that's 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 real. That's more toxic than yeah. I would have even imagined. How it's do you extraordinary? How do you handle? How do you handle what you what you see the size in the lab? I mean, what kind of like biosecurity uh, measures do you have? Yeah. Yeah, I mean we're fortunate. So one of the the the, the main methods for actually studying how batrachotoxin engages the sodium channel is something called electrophysiology, and it's an amazingly sensitive method. And we really can work with literally micrograms of material, um, uh, and 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 be able to. Um, acquire data that helps us to understand how the molecule is, is interacting with the sodium channel. And so working with micrograms of material is well below our lethal dose limit. Remember, I said that it was two micrograms per kilogram. And of course, an average adult is what, probably 50 or 60, 70 kilograms. So, um, 
So, so, so we, we, we are safe in that regard and uh, never making uh, very much of the toxin. And then like anything else, you know, we, we wear uh, a lot of protective um, personal protective equipment uh, from laboratory coats to eyeglasses, to um, nitrile gloves. Um, when we uh, store the toxins, we keep them all in lock boxes and in double lock boxes so that nobody would have access to them. Um, and fortunately, you know, our, our government allows us to 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 keep supplies, small amounts of of, of these materials for for um, for scientific research purposes. Um, there was a time when the NIH had the world's supply of batrachotoxin, which had been isolated from the frogs, and Professor Daly was was basically the one. Um, giving that out to researchers who were interested in using vitracotoxin as a, as a tool compound um, to study neuronal signaling um, or to study voltage-gated sodium ion channels, uh, among other things. Um, right now, the world supply, unfortunately, has dwindled. And um, since daily past, uh, I believe the only person, the only way of getting your hands on vitracotoxin is through a company that I believe is located in France. And when they run out, that's it. Uh, unless, you know, a group like mine is able to produce sufficient quantities for commercial purposes. Now, fortunately, there are very few labs around the world that really need batrachotoxin at this point. So I don't think it's a, it's a real problem from the standpoint of research coming to a halt. But um, I will say it's a huge advantage for us that we can synthesize it and we're not reliant on the natural sources. But Again, with the ability to synthesize these molecules comes the power of being able to re-engineer them and make forms of batrachotoxin that nature never did. And that is really the power of chemical synthesis. Um, it, it, it allows us to make batrachotoxins that might contain a, a, a fluorescent dye molecule that would allow us to begin to visually observe where the voltage-gated sodium channels are located in neuronal cells and how the patterning of those channels is, is changed or affected upon, say, injury to the cell or uh, upon exposure to inflammation factors. And these are the kinds of basic science questions that my lab is trying to answer because in doing so, we will hopefully understand uh, more about, if you will, the molecular etiology of pain. Um, and, uh, and so, um, again, I, we, we really think chemical synthesis has a fantastic role to play in this be because um, we, we get access to, to these molecules that, um, and, and then we're able to redesign these molecules um, as, as just, just incredible probes uh, of, of what I think is some of the most fascinating biology. And that is, you know, how is it that we propagate electricity in, in cells? Oh, one other thing I should mention, Dan, I, I, I picked up on it as, a second ago. And I, I should say, I mean, especially for all the listeners who are so interested in the frog biology and I, cause I think this is a really interesting twist of the story. So if you raise these frogs in captivity that are otherwise known to contain batrachotoxin in their skin uh, uh, and, and, in, um, and in their, um, in their, in their eggs, um, you find that these frogs are no longer toxic. Uh, they no longer contain any batrachotoxin. And uh, it's very well known and has been for some time that that the frogs themselves are not the producers of batrachotoxin. They get, they acquire this toxin from their diet. 
and um, and and not all frogs, as you indicated um, early on in the podcast, uh, are actually um, uh, can actually contain batrachotoxin. And so there are certain regions, apparently, in Colombia where these the frogs that have 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 um, that are living there and have evolved to eat whatever is whatever chow it is they're eating have also learned to sequester this toxin without offing themselves and then to re to use the toxin for their own defensive purposes. And that is just incredibly interesting how they've done that. Uh, and I'd say there are a lot of interesting questions that we don't fully completely have answers to at this point um, related to just this question of sort of chemical symbiosis um, as, as you might imagine, frogs have sodium channels too. They have to propagate electrical, uh, signals in, 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 in their central and peripheral nervous system. And so how can they be acquiring such an acute toxin and, and not be offing themselves? Um, the same question is true for the clams that concentrate paralytic shellfish poisons or the fugu that concentrates something called tetrodotoxin and, and and I I'm really drawn to these questions, um, just from the standpoint of very interesting basic science and evolutionary biology. Um, uh, so we would be happy to talk more about that if, if if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. I it is yes, it, it is very well known that um, obviously dart frogs don't maintain their their potency in captivity because they're missing that crucial element. And I'd always wondered, and I'd had, I'd had conversations with a lot of people, I'd done a, a lot of research on my own, and with the wild diet being so extremely varied, it's difficult to pinpoint whether it's one prey item, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20, or it's, or it's an amalgam of, of, of everything. But the, the convergent evolution between different genera that also produced, uh, that also produce toxins, like I know that, um, uh, Epipetobates genus, they produce, mm-hmm. um, what is it? Uh, Epibatidine. Epibatidine, yes, which is yeah. somewhat similar to nicotine, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah. So it's amazing that there have to be all these other sources in nature, like you said, that are the, the, the fundamentals that, actually, it's kind of ironic because you talk about um, molecules being the building blocks to create, uh, excuse me, well, well um, elements, the periodic table of elements having the ingredients to make molecules just like these prey items have the ingredients to make the toxin. So um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent. But, no, no, um, no. I mean, it, 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 what, is, what is fascinating is you, you know, peer deeper and deeper into the natural world and you look at the kind of arms race that single cellular organisms are having. So, you know, sing, bacteria are, are basically in a war with other bacteria and they produce some of the most extraordinary molecules that are, that are, that are there for, for their own defense, defensive purposes so they can colonize in the presence of other bacteria, but also in some cases as signaling molecules to call out to, to you know, sort of the friendly bacteria to come and colonize with them, if you will. And I'm sorry for anthropomorphizing so much here, but, but this is where we find some of the most extraordinary chemical compounds is from single cellular organisms. And, and so somewhere in the chow of these frogs, they are picking up these bacteria. We don't know the the species of bacteria that hasn't been that hasn't been cloned in the lab um, or or um, yeah uh, or or grown up in the lab. So 
So we don't know um, the bacterial, the bacterium and the bacterial biochemistry that's responsible for generating batrachotoxin. Um, as it turns out, if you go halfway around the world from the Colombian rainforest to Papua New Guinea, you will find batrachotoxin in a species of poisonous bird called pitoe. And the very beetles that these birds prey on are also um, also contain amounts of batrachotoxin. And so this is even more evidence that you know that 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 this is this is really a, a bacterial symbiote that is the ultimate producer uh, of this molecule. And this is also true for paralytic shellfish poisons. Uh, um, for the species, for the for the for the um, for the synthesis of of the fugu toxin, tetrodotoxin, uh, it's almost certain that that comes from a bacterial symbiote. Um, and 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 again, there are many, 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 many examples of this uh, in in nature, and it's just incredibly interesting. And what the frogs have done uh, through presumably you know millennia of evolution is that they've figured out how to now take this toxin, um, package it in the form of a some type of protein batrachotoxin complex so that it just can't spread like wildfire throughout the entire um, organism and, and in doing so um, cause a, a, an effect on the sodium channels that would be lethal. But they've not only, so they're not only figuring out a way of sort of, um, of, 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 of mopping up the toxin, if you will, they then are able to direct it to these vacuoles in the skin where it, where it, it, it sits in a repository there and where of course if a if a if a if a if some some large organism tries to prey on the frogs it, it gets whacked with a, a bolus of this toxin. Um I the coloring is is of course interesting in these frogs. Some of the most brightly colored frogs are the most toxic and and I think it's believed, although my colleague at Stanford knows more, much more about this than I do uh, as a as an expert in this space, but I think it's believed that the coloring is really what's dissuading the, you know, is 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 the signal to the, to the to the predator to to stay away uh, because I'm loaded with 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 toxin. Um, but I I just think it's in, incredible how again you know the the frog has evolved it, it, its own biochemistry, if you will, to be able to deal with such a toxic molecule. Um, uh, and, 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 and trust me, if, if, if it, if it hadn't, there's, there's no way it could have survived ingesting this poison through, through its, through its diet. Um, so, uh, there, there was, a, a some work more recently done that suggested that the frogs may also make mutations in their sodium channels to prevent the toxin from binding, but actually some work I've done with a collaborator at UCSF and also my colleague here at Stanford, uh, suggest that that's probably not the principal mechanism. That indeed there must be some kind of protein sponge that these frogs are have have uh, produced as a way of sort of mopping up the toxin. So again, they can't spread like wildfire through throughout the organism. That's always been the million dollar question, I guess. How is something that is so lethal to every other organism? How does it not? succumb to its own uh, its own toxin it's, it's, absolutely yeah Th this is this is this is a question you know uh, played out over and over again because there, there there are so many interesting toxic organisms uh, uh, on this planet and uh, in some cases the 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 organism is the producer of the toxin uh, um, 
but in in many cases it it's not and it it's really a, as i said a bacterial symbiont that's that's producing the chemical i wanted to ask a question that's uh it's not really directly frog related in fact it's probably not even remotely frog related but I'm curious about the mechanics of, of pain because we've talked consistently about pain. Many drugs on the market, I'd probably say the majority of the drugs on the market are designed to alleviate some sort of symptom that causes pain, if not pain itself. H- how does pain work? And let me just kind of preface this first. By that, I mean, how does a living thing perceive pain and how does it distinguish pain from a different stimuli meaning like what if i take a, a a pin and i press it against my finger it's not pain but if i push it in further then it becomes pain yeah yeah no i mean we you know we've evolved with all manner of different types of receptors uh um in our you know that innervate our skin that are that are associated with the the, the very neurons um that that innervate our skin uh, and that allow us to distinguish sort of what you might describe as sort of normal mechanosensitive pain. So when you're pushing the pin lightly, you feel the touch of it, but you you, you don't feel the pain from it until you stick it in further. And in that case, you're activating something that is sort of generically referred to as a nociceptor. Um, and 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 that signal then is is propagated through um, neurons that are referred to as dorsal root ganglion cells without getting too technical here but that those signals are propagated through the to the spinal cord and then up into the central nervous system where um our brain regions of our brain um that are um sort of have evolved to be the the pain sensing regions if you will uh, will 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 receive those signal inputs and say ouch <laughs> uh, or cause us to say ouch um, and and so it's 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 fairly segregated actually that you know that that we have these this this family of of receptors again known generically as nociceptors sodium channels play a a prominent role in this and um, We've known this for a long time. Uh, we've known this even going back as far as when cocaine was used sort of as an analgesic. Uh, way back when, if you go, you know, back to like early 1900s medicine, you know, people were using cocaine to sort of as a, as a, as a local anal- anesthetic analgesic. Um, and it's not by coincidence that all of the local anesthetics that you may be familiar with if you've gone to the dentist, lidocaine, butivacaine, novocaine, they all end in A-I-N-E because cocaine is really the forebearer. Um, these molecules act on sodium channels. Um, they have to be given as local anesthetics because they will also act on your heart sodium channel and cause arrhythmia uh, if those drugs are given in a systemic way. So if they're given by IV. Um, so we use these drugs all the time, of course, um, as um, topical and local anesthetics. Um, uh, and it's, and, it, and again, it, 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 it's, it's evidence. Uh, there's a large body of evidence that really does establish sodium channels as sort of principal players in these nociceptive pathways, the pathways that are responsible for tr- transmitting pain. Um, uh, 
It's pain is incredibly complex though. I, I would say pain is almost the umbrella term like cancer. Cancer is many things. Um, pain is many things and there are many different types of pain. And I think, you know, with, I don't want to make huge general sweeping statements here, but I, I think it's fair to say, um, that, you know, we still have a lot to learn about the molecular etiology of pain. Um, keep in mind too, that we also don't have really good objective measures of pain. If you go in to see a clinician and you have a pain in your foot or your knee or your lower back, you know, they'll ask you to score the pain subjectively on a one to 10 scale. Um, that's not very quantitative. And obviously the way you sense the pain would be probably very different from the way somebody else might sense it. You might score to seven, somebody else might score to 10. Um, so finding objective so-called biomarkers that would allow us to really say, okay, you know, this is how much pain you should be experiencing because we can quantitatively measure this biomarker. This would be fantastic for the field, for, for, for the field of medicine. Uh, but these things really don't exist right now. And I think, again, without making hugely sweeping statements here, I, I would say it's because we still have a lot to learn about really the molecular underpinnings of, of pain. Um, it's incredibly complicated and, and I think it would be certainly wrong of me to give the impression that sodium channels are the only actors in this incredibly interesting choreographed sort of play. Um, sodium channels are clearly really important. We know that from the genetic uh, analyses of these patients who are insensitive to pain. We know that from a huge amount of biochemistry and physiology that's been done, but by no means are they the only target um, and uh, or the only protein target. And, and there are other ways of, of, of blocking nociception. Um, but at the moment, unfortunately, what patients suffering from any kind of chronic pain have are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you know these as Tylenol, ibuprofen, Aleve, and things like that. These block what are known as cyclooxygenase enzymes that are responsible for creating inflammatory factors. Um, and they work for some patients. Um, we know how much, you know, we know they last for hours, certainly not days. Um, and beyond non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, you have narcotics. You, you have to go to, you know, the oxycontins and the uh, hydrocodones and the Vicodins of the world. And these are not acting to really treat the pain or cure the pain. They really are acting to sort of cover up the pain um, and, 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 and the pain signals. And they work largely in the central nervous system, to some extent in the peripheral nervous system. And one sort of argument you'd make if you had your, you know, if you ha if you had your wish um, and could develop any kind of new pain medicine, you'd want something that works right at the site of injury. You wouldn't want something that's working up in the central nervous system. There's no reason to be acting in the central nervous system. That's not where the origin of the pain is. The pain is peripheral. 
And you'd really like something that would actually cure the pain, not just cover up the pain signal. And unfortunately, we really don't have anything like that right now. And I would say that's a, that's a, that's a really an unmet medical need. Um, and there has to be a hell of a lot more investment than we currently have in trying to discover those real cures for, for chronic pain. Um, because I'm, I'm sure most people have experienced chronic pain or know somebody who's experienced it. It's so prevalent in this country and in, and across the globe. And, you know, the estimates on how much it costs society to have people, one in five people, one in four people living in some kind of chronic pain are astronomical. Um, but, but really understanding that, you know, the, what is really driving the disease, how do we get at really disentangling the complex bio, biochemistry that underlies pain sensation and then finding new protein targets that would allow us to treat the pain. That is certainly a goal of my lab, but it's a goal of many, many, many other labs around the world. Does exposure to this toxin cause pain? That's another question I have. If I were to, just for argument's sake, if I were to touch it, well, actually, I know that it does because I know people who have touched them, but uh, these were, um, I think these were uh, Ufaga, I think it might have been Lamani or Sylvatica, which obviously it's not the same toxin, but if would you feel pain if you were to touch a wild Phyllobates uh, terribilis in all of its glory? Yeah. I would suspect that for some toxins, and remember that 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 these frogs, you know, uh, not not I mean, very few species actually have batrachotoxin. Many of them carry other alkaloid toxins. Um, there are no less than maybe 800 different alkaloids that have been characterized in these frogs, and and we don't know the entire sort of toxicity profile of those molecules, but 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 several of them are acute poisons. Uh, you mentioned epibatidine earlier. That's that's one. Uh, I think in some cases you would feel a sharp burning pain initially, which may then ultimately numb as you become desensitized. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the reason why many of these things are lethal if you're hit by a poison dart, of course, is because they affect your heart and they cause arrhythmia. And, and, and so you, 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 you die of your heart defibrillating, but, 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 um, but I think that it, there are, I, I remember reading a case of a centipede or a scorpions where, you know, folks who were obviously stung by the, the, the scorpion feel intense burning pain. And, and, and that would be associated at least in part with activating a sodium channel. Based on that limited pharmacology, I, I would su submit that probably if I was ever to come in contact with batrachotoxin and enough of it got through the outer layer of my skin, I would probably feel intense pain at first, and then it might subside as those receptors become desensitized. Um, but God forbid it, it, it makes it, you know, enough of it gets into my bloodstream because at that point there's really not much, you know, anyone can do for me. Yeah, that was my, I mean, we're kind of winding down to the end, but I, I had a couple more questions for you, but sure. one question is, can you walk us through the process from well, it wouldn't. I, I guess envenomation wouldn't be the right word because it's not venom. But uh, wouldn't I don't know. I don't know if intoxication would be the right word. But 
the, let's just go through the, the process from start to finish. If an organism was to say, come into a contact, let's, we'll just say a person for all, just to make it simple. Uh, if a person was to come into contact with one of these frogs, touched it, or, you know, maybe had a cut, say it's a, uh, you know, man had a cut on his finger. It got into the cut, got into his bloodstream. What's the chemical process from start to finish, meaning from contact up until death, what what happens in the body on a chemical level? Yeah, uh, well, I, I've certainly, uh, as as that you know chemical is absorbed or enters your your bloodstream, it's going to quickly get passed to your heart, and and arguably that's where a molecule like patracotoxin is going to do its 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 most severe damage, because as soon as it gets to your heart, it's it's actually causing those sodium channels to open up and allow sodium to rush into cells. And that causes the, the, the heart then to, 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 to go into a state of flux. Um, and I don't know how you would actually, you know, you'd need rapid treatment. Um, I, I don't even know what kind of antidote could be given at that point. I'm, I'm afraid I just don't uh, know enough about, uh, about medicine um, to, to make a good guess there. But, but that would be, you know, my, my expectation would be that with patracotoxin, the, the very first thing that would happen would be, you know, you would, you would go into some kind of cardiac arrest. It's interesting, um, a molecules like the ones that come from the red tides, um, these toxins actually don't act on sodium channels that are found principally in heart tissue. They act on skeletal sodium skeletal muscle sodium channels um among other sodium channels but that's a principal target and so in that case if you were ever to eat a clam or an oyster or a mussel that was contaminated with some of these paralytic shellfish poisons what you would sense is a shortness of breath because your diaphragm would be paralyzed and so you would be having problems breathing but actually your heart would keep beating um, you would start to then experience paralysis um, uh, because other skeletal muscle sodium channels would then get blocked if the dose was high enough. Um, but in theory, you could survive that sort of intoxication as long as you got some help breathing um, because eventually, you know, because the poison would be, would, would ultimately release from the sodium channel and ultimately get cleared um, from the body. So there are, in fact, uh, select cases of people having been intoxicated by paralytic shellfish poison and surviving those um, incidents. But trachotoxin is a little bit more pernicious that way. Once it gets into the sodium channel, it does not release very easily. And and so that's why I, I think, you know, um, it, 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 it would be really, a, uh, I, I think, quite scary to be, you know, um, to come into contact, especially blood contact with the trachotoxin, to have a, a small amount of that, you know, coursing through your bloodstream and then again, landing first on your heart and causing your heart to start to go into arrest. Um, I just don't know how you, you survive something like that. I couldn't imagine being uh, yeah. particularly, particularly pleasant, although I, yeah. I, I yeah. would prefer that to the, the previous example that you mentioned. I I don't know if I'd want to be conscious not being able to breathe while my heart was still going. I, I think I'd rather yeah. go fast. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this, this discussion is a little bit morbid, but I should say, too, I mean, batrachotoxin, I think if you if you were to get a high enough dose, would 
would also affect your skeletal muscle too. But I, I would see that as secondary to, to the heart being the, the first organ that's really affected. Mm-hmm. It, I, I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever been in venom. Well, again, I keep, it's not venom. It's, it's a toxin, but I don't know yeah. anybody who's had contact with one because I can't imagine they would live to tell the story. I confess I have not come across any sort of anecdotal, uh, uh, you know, evidence of what it's like to be poisoned. Uh, the, the, the Choco, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, the Choco Indians in Colombia, are the, the in- indigenous peoples who have, you know, used the, the poison dart frogs for hunting purposes, and they tip the ends of their spears with, the, you know, the poison. So there's clearly got to be a lot of pharmacology on, on what it's like for a, a large animal um, to suffer at the fate of batrachotoxin poisoning. Uh, and again, my, my guess is that their, their heart stops very quickly and then they, they, they drop. I saw footage of it years ago when I was, when I was real young, back when uh, the discovery channel and the learning channel actually had education, actually had educational contact uh, content rather. There was, um, there was a video of native people hunting. I think it might've been a spider monkey. And they did just that. They they caught a, a terribilis, and they, I think they held it between two, like uh, almost like, uh, almost kind of like uh, chopsticks. Uh, to to, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, but it was like two very very thin pieces of wood. They kind of pinched it between there. I think they held it over a flame. They rubbed the mm-hmm. arrowhead across mm-hmm. it, and they just. I think it was a bite of a blowgun. Actually, they fired a blowgun into this monkey, and it just dropped out of the tree. Yeah, immediately. It yeah. was it was so fast that whatever it was, whatever hit it was apparently so lethal that it just, it, it stopped it right there in its tracks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is the amazing, uh, aspect of, I mean, that, that is a clear evidence of how, how fast pharmacology can be. I mean, the minute that drug, you know, is released into the bloodstream of that, of that monkey, you know, it, 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 it's over. And, and, if you've ever experienced a morphine injection, an IV morphine injection, you can appreciate just how fast these 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 kinds of molecules can work. And from our perspective, just getting back to the research a little bit, I mean, one of the advantages of being a chemist interested in studying a fast biological process like electrical signaling and nociception is that we develop tools from starting materials or lead compounds like batrachotoxin, which also work with great speed. So, you know, if you, if you want to study a fast process, it pays to have a, a, a fast set of tools. Um, and, um, and that, that I would argue is, 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 is really, um, one of the sort of unique aspects of my lab is that again, as chemists, we can, we can have access to an unlimited number of these kinds of, um, chemical tools, um, that, that we're able to, 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 to design and, and synthesize in the group. That leads me to my last question, which again is not really frog related. This is this is more of a, I guess, a subjective question. You, by all means, answer this however you like. But people are often critical of, I want to say, I guess, man-made molecules, but they're still made from the same elements. I mean, we're not creating anything new. We basically have all the ingredients to pretty much create whatever we want out there in the universe already. Do you have any thoughts on that about why people might be adverse to synthetics as opposed to something that just occurs naturally? 
No, I, I, I can't say that I do. I think part of it is, you know, um, our, our, dare I say, failings as educators of, of you know, as educators of chemistry um, that, that we, again, maybe we don't get the opportunity to really impress upon students, young students, the, the value of uh, that chemistry brings and the fact that if I'm working with carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur, phosphorus, these are the very elements that one finds in organic molecules uh, that are naturally occurring and that I can synthesize the exact same molecules that are naturally occurring. And by doing that, I don't have to go extract them from from some landfill or take them from an organism. Um, so, uh, but I, I, public perceptions on, on matters like this, um, I, I feel like, you know, we just, as educators, we just need to do a better job. Um, there's no reason to be scared, in my opinion, of synthetic materials. Um, um, again, uh, we, um, you know, I, I, and I, and I, I, maybe by the same token, I would just add, I think the pharmaceutical industry does get a very bad rap in this country. I mean, in some cases I, I read, you know, um, pieces about the pharma industry and it, it almost equates them to the tobacco industry. And I, and I, I would push back on that. I mean, th and this is not a statement about drug pricing. That's a totally opaque, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the way in which drugs are priced in this country is completely opaque to me. I don't understand that at all. And I don't want to get into that. But what I would say is that the pharmaceutical industry and the ability to, to generate, you know, synthetic compounds um, that we call therapeutics has been so transformative. I mean, if you think about the average lifespan of folks living in the Western world, we're we're now into the 80s, and and if somebody, you know, um, dare I say, dies, you know, at an age that's less than 80, you say, wow, that person died young. But 50, 60 years ago, I mean, the average lifespan was probably no more than 67. And this is, you know, it's 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 not a coincidence that that this has happened. It's not because we we are better at dieting or exercising. I don't. I think. Perhaps some of us are, many of us maybe not so much, but you know what modern pharmaceuticals have done for humankind, for quality of life, I, I mean, it, it really is amazing and it's something that should be celebrated a little bit more. I mean, I always think back to when I was uh, young and in Magic Johnson, the NBA you know, player on the Lakers came out as HIV positive. At that time, we thought he had two years to live, if that. You look now, I mean, he's living a full life along with many, many, many other people who have HIV. Again, that is a testament to the power of synthetic molecules of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, ginning up all of its resources to go after a disease like that, to be able to at least block the onset of, of AIDS. And in you know, in the last two years, look at what synthetic molecules have done to um, stem the tide of this COVID pandemic. I mean, it, it's 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 really heroic, and I think it it should be celebrated that way. And unfortunately, I think for a number of reasons, not the least of which are probably drug pricing. You know, the pharmaceutical industry gets a pretty bad rap, and 
I'm not here to, you know, sound like I'm a champion for pharmaceutical industry. I'm a, I'm a champion for molecular science. And I, I just feel like we don't do a good enough job of educating people in the power of molecular science. And we don't do enough, a uh, good enough job of celebrating the real victories in molecular science, the real discoveries that have changed, you know, the course of life for, for so many of us. So, um, that's, you know, that, that, that's, that's my two bits on your, your very interesting question, Dan. And, and, uh, and I, I wish I had a better answer for it. No, I think that was a, that was a great answer. I mean, again, I'm, I'm again, I, a lot of times I ask these questions cause I'm just curious, but I, I like the analogy. Um, I'm going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of make my own analogy here that I think that everyone can kind of in the broader sense of my audience can relate to. Uh, synthetic chemistry, I guess we could equate it on our end as captive breeding. And like some of the, the, the references you made before about not having to pull chemicals out of a landfill or, or having to go to some odd place that might be uh, environmentally imperiled or whatever. We generally are of the consensus that we, you know, in, at least in the dart frog hobby is, uh, with certain exceptions of, of importing and stuff like that to is, establish bloodlines and what and pertain, uh, maintain genetic integrity. On the whole, I, I would say the majority of dart frogs are captive bred because why collect them from the wild when we can successfully pr- produce them essentially artificially, which we do. Whether we admit it or not, we're still producing them artificially because um, there's nothing natural about them living in a, in a glass box despite, <laughs> despite what we may think. I guess you could use that same line of thinking for uh, for synthesizing art of, well I, I again I would say artificial because technically everything exists out there in the universe anyway but uh, for for synthesizing artificial medications I guess you could kind of consider it to be the same thing because you're taking pressure off of an external situation that might have other repercussions and you're creating it in a controlled setting to accomplish a very very specific purpose meaning we breed dart frogs in captivity not because we want to uh, harvest their tox- their toxins because they don't make them in captivity, but really just more for our own personal enjoyment, which is, again, very, very similar to the medication. I mean, obviously medications, they save lives, they keep people alive, but they also improve our quality of life. So I, I don't know. That's my little, my, yeah. that's my two cents. Well, <laughs> I would say that if I were to discover in nature tomorrow the most amazing molecule for, for uh, treating folks with Alzheimer's disease, I would ask the question, do you want me to go and take down whatever tree or tree bark I may have found that molecule in? Do you want me to go and and cut down every tree so that I can collect enough of that molecule to give to patients? Or should I go find a better way of producing that molecule? And 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 I think the answer is clear in 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 this case that you'd want to make that molecule synthetically. You know, you want to spare nature, and uh, and and there's a perfect example of this. In fact, uh, you know, there's a, a cancer drug that's sold as taxateer that was found. The molecule itself was found initially in the bark of the yew tree, and um, there was a time uh, where we thought that in order to get enough of the material, we were going to have to strip the bark of many, many, many yew tree. Uh, and fortunately, that that turns out not to be the case because. Uh, we found a renewable resource that could produce a molecule that was close to being the same molecule that's found in the U-tree, and then chemistry could could convert that 
that starting material into the to the into 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 what is now sold as taxateer or taxol. And and so I, I think in that in again in that context, I mean, I think if we could if we could get that that sort of story out there and and tell those kinds of stories to to more people, um, I think they would have a different view of synthetic chemistry and and the idea of a molecule being unnatural. Um, you know, as you said, I mean, our building blocks are our building blocks. They are the periodic table. We're not changing any of that. And, and, and neither is nature. Um, so all I'm doing is looking for different ways of putting the molecule together and, uh, and, and, and sparing, you know, in the case of and sparing 10,000 of those, those frogs. I, I can definitely agree with that. I mean, just, just by virtue of the fact that you're synthesizing the toxin artificially in the lab and not pulling thousands. I mean, there's already, I don't want to get into the whole, uh, logistics of what threatens frog species in the wild because there's just so many but i mean that's one less pressure that's just been snap your fingers Absolutely. gone it's it's poof it's gone just because you're able to synthesize it artificially so yeah yeah well we're kind of at the end but i wanted to just give you a chance to offer to the listeners um you know any resources that they might want to check out if they if you i mean i know you have a, a you have a website with some of your publications on it is there anything that you want to share with the listeners if they want to find out some more information oh uh wow i'm sorry i i should have i should have uh jotted down a few things before we started the podcast um I mean, there's a lot of wonderful you know sort of popular science information about the 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 toxin and uh dart frog toxins um or, or, uh, in general um uh, if you just google but i i there's a i would i would point towards a an article that was published in two thousand nine in a journal called heterocycles and i I think this should be in the public domain. The title of the article is Discovery of Batrachotoxin, the Launch of the Frog Alkaloid Program at NIH or National Institutes of Health. Uh, and the authors are Garafo and Spande, and and I, I could send you this link uh, if there's some way for you to, to to post this, Dan. But I think it's a nice article. It 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 sort of it's a popular read. It sort of runs through the history of the the program at NIH. And um, uh, again, I mean, keeping in mind that this was the 1960s, uh, we've learned a lot since then. Um, sadly, there were again many, you know thousands of frogs that were sacrificed in the name of science and discovering what the poisonous constituents of the frogs were. But, um, but I think, uh, if, if anybody is interested in reading more about it, this is probably the, 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 the sort of most popular science article that I've come across. Uh, um, I, I, I guess I would just also add that, you know, I, I hope and, um, I I love to find a, a a way to do this and and maybe you know maybe even getting a chance to come back on your show but um there's so much there's so many interesting stories that exist that have to do with the interface of chemistry and biology and medicine and and I and I hope maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg for your listeners and um that that you might be encouraged to go off and and uh, and learn more a- about this, and it might 
change your perspective of chemistry in in a in a in a positive way. Um, there's some great books that are written on toxins and 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 uh, and how uh, you know these toxins really became the leads, the lead compounds for the development of 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 some really, really important medicines. And again, I'd be happy to send you those references, Dan, if there's a way you can make, make those available. Yeah. Any links that you want me to post in the show notes? I mean, you guys out there all know, I, I, I'll always include links in the show notes. So, uh, any, anything that you want me to include link wise or whatever, just send it to me and I'll make sure that it's in the, um, that it's in the show notes that the listeners can click on it. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've really, really enjoyed uh, coming on the show and um, appreciate all your questions and your interest, Dan. Well, it's been my pleasure having you. It was, it was very enlightening. I, was, I, I must say I was most surprised by what you mentioned about what happened in the 60s and 70s about all those frogs being harvested like that by the um, National Institute of Health. It just, I, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't realize it such a long time ago that there was uh, such, a, such a high demand for them, but it's wild. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 sad given that many of these frogs are now endangered, and you know, I, obviously our our NIH contributed to that in 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 some way. But but uh, you know, it's a double edged sword for me because the flip side is we also uh, were able to uh, isolate and determine the structure, the molecular structure of this amazing molecule, batrachotoxin, which I think is is really going to prove to be a very unique tool hopefully in our hands, um, that allows us to understand the sort of inner workings of these sodium channels and their role in, in pain perception. I'm sure it will. Definitely fascinating stuff. All right, everyone, I want to thank uh, my guest, Justin Dubois of Stanford, and it was an absolute pleasure having him on. And I, I, I always say this at the end of uh, you know every episode, I learned a lot. I hope you guys too. I know it was um, kind of heavy handed with the chemistry, but uh, I mean, look, if we're going to talk about toxicity, chemistry is the building blocks of all that. So I, uh, <laughs> I know you guys appreciated it. So um, yeah, keep your eyes. Uh, well, I just say keep your eyes open. Uh, keep your ears open. And uh, yeah, check out the next episode coming up. Catch up with you guys again soon.